June 18th, 1945. Dear Mr. B, I've been so busy, I couldn't manage a letter to you. In my last note, I mentioned I was going ahead to make arrangements for more Bratai, Biak, and Hollandia. The committee's wishes, to be sure. John had left for the Central Pacific, and at that time, Ben was to go with him. With all modesty, I must say I have done a rather remarkable job. For one thing, the stages, rations, billets, etc. were just as they should be, and the men approved highly. Not even one gripe. As a matter of fact, we're living at the moment in what is unquestionably the most comfortable billets we've had since America. If nothing else, the men are fast regaining weight. I think we really had enough of the ship. Towards the end, it became uncomfortably filthy, and everyone was relieved when it sailed from Hollandia after discharging her theatrical cargo. Like all good things, it served its purpose. While playing in Moratai one night to a packed house, some food in the audience, some fool in the audience yelled air raid, and the wildest panic started. For us, it was the strangest experience since our boys, if nothing else, have learnt restraint in the face of that sort of thing. Actually, no siren nor any other detecting device was sounded. It was sort some Australian, they say, who wanted to get a seat down front. Well, whatever it was, it cost us two, 11 precious musical instruments. The panicked audience rushed for the stage, thinking it would be some sort of shelter. And during that rush, they trampled the stage, thinking it would be the, sta the musicians and their instruments. Mm -hmm. I immediately made sure the general of the post sent a signal to headquarters Sassos explaining the incident and accepting the responsibility as theirs. For the rest of our stay in Moritai, we borrowed instruments, hoping all of the time that special services would make some adjustment. Their attitude, I must tell you, in spite of the tribute and variety, and was absolutely typical. They did nothing other than accept our report of survey. In effect, that means they would extend the monies to buy new instruments, but absolutely refused to give us theirs. That was a wonderful situation, because I can't think of any native shop that carries those wares. We tried everything. Nugsack, Usasos, Base 10, and down to Q. Always the same answer. We do have instruments we can't let you have, but Usasos must authorize that transfer mm -hmm. of material since you don't belong to the SWPA and are about to leave it anyway. Usasos, on the other hand, played possum. They did nothing but suggest we continue to borrow wherever we went. So I sent a letter by safe-hand courier to Lewis Simon at headquarters, in which I stressed the dire urgency of that equipment, and also mentioned that Tita would have to report the entire incident, since we weren't part of Usasos, as they carefully stressed to Washington, if only to explain why army equipment assigned to us was no longer in our possession. I then added, which I borrowed from you, that to us was no longer it. that General Eisenhower, who recommended that we go to a world's tour to General Marshall, based his recommendation on the show he saw in London, a show that definitely included the entire orchestra. I suggested you would be annoyed to think we might play in an area without QM depots from which we could borrow, and so to be forced to do so big a project as Tita without its band. Well, it worked. They finally yielded. But they were quite 
firm as they had always been when we returned whatever equipment that rightfully belonged to them. Equipment such as most of our PA systems, horns, and two pianos before leaving for the Central Pacific, since all that was charged against them. I thought that would be another headache, but I solved it. A friend of mine, an officer at Signal Corps, made a deal with us off the record. In return for all that valuable stuff, we were to give him an equal amount of junk we intended to leave behind anyway. Stuff that we left behind at Melanie Bay. And now we have our own PA system, augmented since the whole thing was built to John Talbot's specifications, and can return the equipment we drew, build, return the equipment we drew officially at Milne Bay. What this officer did actually was to have his staff build an entire new system with their own equipment. That was number two on the good side. All of this was done while I was doing the advance work. Our old boxes and crates, which we left at Milne Bay, never budged. So I got together with Lewis Simon and through headquarters, we got a we had a priority signal sent to all the bases in New Guinea and elsewhere to trace that stuff, since we'd always been told in and out of committee meetings that it was on its way. Well, it never left Milne Bay, since no official order for its transfer mm -hmm. was ever framed. I got Usasos to send an official order for its movement, and then through a Colonel Wright, a friend of Colonel Dunn, the West Point guy you met at Finchhaven, who, by the way, is the fleet commander of Nugsec, got all the stuff sent up here to Hollandia before the company arrived. I even had it loaded and trucked by the Port Authority to the mm -hmm. area we occupy. There's a large shed where we do our repair shows, hospital presentations, and many little details we have to get everything we need to take with us in tip-top shape. Oh, another thing. I made a valuable contact at the Navy. Since we are to play more rear-line areas, and since we have no scenery of any use, since most of that stuff was damaged before we left India, we thought it wise, if we were to do a show with curtains and only curtains for any production values, to utilize our original ones and have them fit for the new mm -hmm. type of stage we've been playing and are to play in the future. Up to this time, we could never get the right type of equipment to do that sort of repair work. Well, this naval officer got us to you, you, the use of the Navy Sail Repair Shop, and their men are remaking our drapes to specification and taking all, out all the linings so that their original weight, which could only be supported on heavy steel traveler racks, which needed a steel grid to support them, would no longer be a problem. One more thing. Since no one ever bothered to keep receipts of all the air freight packages we were to receive from all those orders we put in at Washington many, many months ago, it seemed impossible to get any of that stuff which, according to the grapevine system, had arrived in the Pacific. With the approval of Lewis Simon, I devised a scheme for getting that merchandise. To date, we've been quite successful and have now gotten three or four of those shipments. Of course, I am pretty nearly exhausted. But if nothing else, I wanted to prove to myself, and frankly to you, since you always made a point of reminding the committee that I shouldn't go in advance, that always made a point that I could rectify a few of the many mistakes which could be blamed rightfully to our administration. It might please you to know that Special Services at Manila thinks I've done a very constructive job.
The only reason I went ahead is because Ben, Carl, Rosie, Alan, and Pete wanted me to. Perhaps they anticipated what was in store for the advance agent. Well, I did it, and even if you're not impressed, I am. This I tell you, though. I shall never do it again. I've created a precedent, which I shall expect the future advance guys to maintain after all. I, want, I went all alone, and that was unprecedented, too. I know just what you're thinking. I am conceited so-and-so, but as I've always yapped, it can be done. The show itself is going wonderfully. I enjoy the new number more and more, and so does the audience. What do you think of restoring This Time is the Last Time as a finale now that we're to play in real lines? I think we need that punch at the finish. Please let me know. Ben left for the States while I was away. I suppose you would like to know my reaction to that. I am only sorry he didn't manage to say goodbye to the boys. You know how they are, and of course, just appearing like that gives them fine food for venom. This new point system, instituted by the Army, has left an indelible mark on the thinking of our bunch. Many of them have well over the critical point score, and I'm sure it could get out if they were in any other outfit. I, Owen tells me you have no objections. Well, I do. How can we do t- Tita with some 30 people out, and some of them very important too? Amusingly enough, the chronic homing birds, such as Dick, Bernie, and Hank Henry, are not included in the group who have the necessary points, but they bitch anyway. I think it's very strange that certain members of our committee, who should be trying their damnedest to keep the thing together, do nothing but spend all their and the company's time investigating how one gets out of the army. Alan was in the hospital in Moratai and rejoined us in Hollandia. Now Rosie's gone medical too. I frankly was very happy with Alan away because most of the things I accomplished I did in his absence. And to reassure you, I've never made a move without consulting the others, especially Carl Fisher, for whom I've always had great respect. Mr. B, I can understand why people want to go home, especially men with families. Sometimes I'd give my right arm to be turned back, and then I realize others have given both arms and yet are yet to be returned. I'll grant after we've finished with the Central Pacific, we're entitled to return, and truthfully, we shall all have points enough to be dismissed from the Army. But until we finish that schedule, why not work and forget that rot? Sure, we finished as I say. I shall fight harder than anyone else for our return. But at the moment, we're doing a show, and I believe it's the moral duty of the committee, and that goes for every one of us, to keep this thing going. Otherwise, what hypocrisy. We punish a private for the slightest infraction of a law, sometimes arbitrarily too, yet we spend day and night worrying about how to get out, and the next morning become the serious dictators. That is a lot of crap. If certain people would worry more about the lights that are fast giving me cancer, I'd like it very much. I'd like it very much, if necessary, when we arrive in Saipan, since we have four more performances in the Southwest Pacific, before we leave, I shall get new generators. I've learned how to get things. It's a tricky, busy affair, but it can be done. Promise me, when all this is over, to have one drink with me. As civilians, there's so much about people we both have to learn. I don't, don't think me rude, but I'll do everything within my power to see this show through to closing night. It's become a religion with me. As far as the men go, and that includes Hank Henry and Dick Burney, they'll stick and do a great job. Minna Wallace wrote to tell me, You both had a long talk, 
Thanks a lot. I'm very proud you can, in spite of all your affairs, think of me. She was very optimistic about Hollywood, and from what I could read between the lines, that optimism sprung from whatever you told her. Mr. B, we're doing well. The show is still, as you always said, hot or cold, a great show, and will amaze the Central Pacific. After that, I'll be pleased. Take care of yourself. Someone told me you're looking a little tired, so please don't overdo it. The picture will do good. Will be good. It has to be. My very best to Mrs. Berlin and the children. Bob, Sergeant Robert Sidney. Postscript. Irving Berlin was one of the first American songwriters to crack the code for writing enduring hits, creating such classics as White Christmas, Happy Holiday, God Bless America, and Putting on the Ritz. Yet his path to songwriting stardom was far from a foregone conclusion. For one thing, English was not even his first language. Berlin immigrated to New York from Siberia at the age of five and received only a few years of schooling before his father's early death forced him to drop out and seek work. Berlin began singing professionally by necessity. Entering the workforce at 13, he had few skills, but from his father, a cantor, he had inherited excellent singing voice. To supplement his pay as a newspaper boy, Berlin sang for passerbys on the street of New York, and after learning through his tips what music resonated, he began to compose new songs on the spot to please his audience. Eventually, Berlin landed a job as a singing waiter. This position gave Berlin a new venue to test out his latest lyrical compositions and, critically, access to a piano, which he taught himself to play in long sessions after closing time. All this led to Berlin finally selling his first song to a music publisher at age 19. Within a year of that first song, Berlin found full-time work composing songs in New York's famous Tin Pan Alley. Never taught to read or write music, Berlin was forced to rely on co-workers to transcribe his creations, but he was prolific, publishing dozens of songs each year. Many of these early songs were well-received, but it was a 1911 composition, Alexander's Ragtime Band, which turned Berlin into an international star. Most of Berlin's songs focused on the trivialities of life, but in 1914, as the war in Europe began to rage, Berlin set out to write a song that captured the spirit of an American public wary of the war across the pond. His 1914 satire, Stay Down Here Where You Belong, tells the story of a conversation between the devil and his son during the opening days of war. Seeking the war raging, seeing the war raging in Europe, the devil's son asks if they can go above. The devil pleads, stay down here, and warns, the folks who live above you don't know right from wrong. They're breaking the hearts of mothers, making butchers out of brothers. It resonated. Groucho Marx continued to sing it to Berlin chagrin, even decades later. But by 1917, public opinion had shifted, and Berlin changed his tune. Shortly after the United States entered World War I, Berlin was drafted into the Army. From his training camp, he began to write a mix of patriotic odes and humorous songs about Army life. He soon attracted the attention of the camp's commanding officer, who asked if he'd like to write a music review to raise money for some new auxiliary buildings. Berlin gleefully accepted the challenge, and within months, months Yip 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 Hank raised his curtain, performing entirely by performed entirely by draftees, Berlin show gave the nations many new soldiers and their families a chance to laugh at was otherwise a disconcerting experience. The show's highlight 
was Berlin singing a song called Oh How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, in which he bemoans being woken up early each morning by a bugler. The song opens, Someday I'm going to murder that bugler. Thankfully for the bugler, once Berlin began work on the show, he was granted an exemption from early morning wake-ups. Yip Yip Ya Hank raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's probably most notable for a song Berlin wrote decided, decided not to include, God Bless America. After World War I, Berlin's meteoric rise continued. God Bless America, finally released in 1938, and other new hits filled the airwaves while old, old favorites found new life in Hollywood with the emergence of talkies. Yet, after the Pearl Harbor attack, Berlin felt a longing to do something more consequential. Searching for some way to contribute to the war effort, Berlin wrote General George C. Marshall to propose putting on a new show with an army cast to boost morale and raise money for the Army Emergency Relief Fund, which assisted military families in need. General Marshall loved the idea, and soon Berlin was at work in an army, writing songs for the new show, eventually entitled This is the Army, or T-I-T-A, or TITA. General Marshall gave Berlin substantial leeway to organize the production, allowing him to handpick his cast from the Army's mainly drafted Hollywood mainstays. Berlin even secured rare permission to include black soldiers in the production, making Tita perhaps the only fully integrated unit in the military at the time. In return for his help, Berlin delivered Marshall a smash hit. Live performances by the show's all-army cast sold out theaters on Broadway and across the country, raising millions of dollars. Satisfied attendees included President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, King George VI, and General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The film version, featuring guest stars like boxer Joe Lewis and actor Ronald Reagan, was even more successful. The top-grossing film of 1943, it raised more than $8 million for charity, $143 million today. Sheet music sales also raised millions, yet this fundraising effort was only Tita's first act. After completing the film, Berlin and his cast took the show on tour to combat zones across the globe. In Italy, they performed to packed crowds in cities liberated only days earlier. In the Pacific, they island-hopped, doing shows on islands like Okinawa, Kwajalein, and Leyte. Putting on a play was certainly safer than fighting on the front lines, but it still carried some risks and challenges. In this week's letter, Berlin's choreographer, Robert Bob Sidney, a draftee, updates Berlin on the show's Pacific tour, which Berlin had recently parted with. The focus of this letter is a humorous but destructive incident in which an Australian GI yelled air raid to secure a better seat, starting a panic rush to the stage. Air raid fears were one in a long line of difficulties Berlin and his team faced in putting on complicated touring shows in the middle of a war. Reaching new audiences often required bumpy and treacherous sea voyages on whatever rickety ship the army could spare. Traveling to remote, war-torn locales, they had to bring everything they needed with them. If anything broke, be it from an empty shell, a panicked stampede, or a hot and humid climate, they'd have to scavenge, barter for, or improvise a replacement so the show could go on. Their schedule, performing three or four shows a day, sometimes on limited rations and fresh water, was grueling, yet with each show, they were given a new reminder of their purpose. At the start, they'd watch a crowd of weary, grizzled veterans trickle in. At the end, they'd see those same soldiers filter out, cheering, laughing, and grinning from ear to ear.